This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. I'm Tony Lepstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? In the beginning, the end. It's a story, but that's why I'm here, to tell you stories. So where to start? When you're in the middle of a story, it isn't a story at all, but only a confusion, a dark roaring, a blindness, a wreckage of shattered glass and splintered wood, like a house in a whirlwind or or else a boat crushed by the icebergs or swept over the rapids, and all aboard are powerless to stop it. It's only afterwards that it becomes anything like a story at all, when you're telling it to yourself or to someone else. This morning, we're going to hear a conversation with Francis Weller, author of The Wild Edge of Sorrow, Rituals of Renewal and the Sacred Work of Grief. And he'll be introduced by Michael Lerner. Francis Reller is a psychotherapist, writer, and soul activist. And the core of his work is creating pathways to reclaiming our indigenous soul, what Carl Jung called the unforgotten wisdom that resides in the heart of the psyche. He founded and directs Wisdom Bridge that offers educational programs that seek to integrate wisdom from traditional cultures with the insights of Western cultures. And for more than 30 years, he has developed a style of psychotherapy called soul-centered psychotherapy. He's been described as a jazz artist improvising and moving fluidly in and out of deep emotional territories with groups and individuals. His new book, The Wild Edge of Sorrow, Rituals of Renewal and the Sacred Work of Grief. Francis, there are people in the audience today I know for whom grief is not a second-hand question for cocktail conversations, but an active experience right now. There are people in the audience who are hurting. For people who are here and hurting, what would you suggest to them? We're going to start off light, I guess. Okay. Okay. Well, I think the, the first thing I would say is 
Be aware of your relationship to your sorrow. Is it something that you try to avoid? Is it something you try to outrun? Mm -hmm. Is it something that you tend to keep private? Shame, the shame that can kind of gather around the things that we privatize mm -hmm. sometimes makes us almost feel apologetic for our grief. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I would recommend is that you try to befriend the sorrow. Mm -hmm. It's a difficult guest, but it's there nonetheless. Mm -hmm. And if we can find a way to approach grief with a degree of kindness and a degree of warmth, it can begin to move. There's an old thought from alchemy that says that in order for things to change, a certain degree of heat has to be applied. So if you can imagine our grief is in a container, it's in a vessel. And if our attempts to distance ourselves from it, in a sense, keep it cold. So grief will tend to congeal and harden in those times. But if we can bring affection, attention, interest, curiosity, even writing or dancing, drawing, we begin to warm the grief, and then it begins to change over time. It begins to ripen us as human beings. Mm -hmm. I often say there's a certain degree of maturation that cannot occur without a certain measure of sorrow in our lives. And Carl Jung very much agreed with you on that. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. In fact, you quote him. There's a beautiful quote here from Jung about how, I don't have it exactly, but it is only through connecting with your grief that the maturation of consciousness takes place. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the most innovative things you do in this book, really, I think, something you alone have done, is to say that there are five different gates of grief. And this is something I've never heard anybody really address in the same way. So let's just start. What are the five gates of grief? Well, I've kind of come to understand these gates by sitting with circles of grievers mm -hmm. for many, many years. And what I began to notice was typically how culturally we only acknowledge one form of grief. When we lose somebody. When we lose someone we love yeah. or something we love. Mm -hmm. That's the first gate of grief. When we lose something that we love, mm -hmm. that's the first gate of grief. Another way to say it is that everything you love, you will lose. Right. We don't get to keep anything. Right. So that's the first gate. The second gate is something I see all the time in my practice as a therapist, which is the parts of us that have never known love. These are the parts of us that we're told in one way or another were unwelcomed in our families, in our religions, in our educational systems, that we had to kind of cut off from consciousness, from a relationship. For me, I had to cut off anger, sadness, sensuality, uh, exuberance. I had to cut all those off to get some kind of provisional welcome in my systems. Well, those are losses to the integrity of my being. And every loss is worthy of grief. But the problem is we typically hold those parts of ourselves with contempt. And you cannot grieve for something that you hold with contempt. With contempt or else we hold them privately because we may say to ourselves... I don't hold this with contempt, I honor it, but the culture doesn't honor it. And so therefore I must keep it to myself. That would be a wonderful option. Mm -hmm. I don't see that very often. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. I typically see much more often is that there is this feeling of this must not have been an okay part of me. Uh -huh. 
So I, re- I end up relating to this part the same way it was related to, mm-hmm. which is usually with judgment, mm-hmm. which usually gathers shame around it. Mm-hmm. And again, making it almost impossible to grieve it. Mm-hmm. So a lot of my work and my practice is beginning to end the assault, to begin to end the distancing and the shame around these parts of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And when they begin to come back home, one way that the mending begins to occur is by grief. Mm-hmm. I really weep for this fact. Mm-hmm. The third gate of grief is the sorrows of the world. Driving down here, we saw, you know, a number of casualties by the side of the road. You know, cats and skunks and possums. and These are, they affect us. They touch us. And the sorrows of the world right now are so immense that it almost overwhelms us. Absolutely. With its grief. And you know, in the Cancer Help Program, when we ask people before they come to say what major losses they had before the onset of their cancer, it's not uncommon for people to say that they were overwhelmingly grieving what's happening to the world. In other words, people, you know, they list the loss of a husband or wife or a parent or the loss of a job or something that that they loved, as you said. I mean, how can you not watch what's happening with the refugees, you know, tens of millions of people Mm -hmm. can no longer live where they live. And they are just fleeing, you know. And so the level of psychic grief that we feel about that. Right, right. Robert Lifton used to talk about psychic numbing in the face of, of this. So, And there's intelligence in that. Right. Particularly because we've been asked to carry this grief so privately, right. it can overwhelm us in an instant. Right. So there's a certain intelligence in numbing. Right. You know, we need that. So the first is the grief of someone we lose. The second is the grief of the parts of us that we had to cut ourselves off with. The third is the grief for the suffering of the world. What is the fourth gate? The fourth one kind of was a, um, a gathering surprise to me. Uh-huh. which was the grief for what we expected and did not receive. Uh-huh. That's beautiful. That one really struck me. It's, it, every time yeah. we work with that in, in our community rituals, mm-hmm. it's a profound layer of grief. Mm-hmm. So again, it's what we expected and did not receive. Our gifts were not welcomed into the world as we wished they might have been welcomed. Our gifts were not welcomed, yeah. but also what we expected. Mm-hmm. R.D. Lang says, we arrive here as Stone Age children. Mm-hmm. In other words, we are wired psychically, emotionally, even say spiritually, for the entire expanse of what our deep time ancestors experienced, mm-hmm. which was a participatory world, mm-hmm. participating with nature, participating in the ongoing life of the community. We expected to get up in the morning and find this many pairs of eyes staring back at us and wondering, what did you dream last night, Michael? Mm-hmm. And, and sharing food together every day not just on Thanksgiving, and to have rituals for grieving together and to, and to have rituals of gratitude and celebration. All of those things were wired into us. Mm-hmm. You know, to sit under the stars at night and hear the old stories. And almost none of that took place. And what I hear almost every day in my practice is someone talking about this emptiness they feel. And we personalize the emptiness as if something, I didn't do something right 
where if I had just figured this out, I wouldn't feel empty. But what if that emptiness is this profound absence of what did not take shape and did not take place? We almost don't even know to grieve this. It's become so distant, and emptiness has become so normalized mm -hmm. as a psychological symptom. And again, we numb ourselves. And we, yeah, we have to, yeah. to a degree. And the fifth gate? The fifth gate is what I call ancestral grief. And that's a fascinating one. Say more about that. It's a very complex one. The more I study it, the more I, uh, I'm, I'm pretty touched by it. There's layers to it. One of them would be simply the fact that we all come from, at some point, an intact tribal culture mm -hmm. that had its own intimacy with land base, with language, with rituals, with traditions. It had its whole entire cosmology embedded in that mm -hmm. territory. Mm -hmm. And then there was a rip. There was a tear. Whether by choice or by force, there was a rupture in that continuum. Mm -hmm. And they left. They came here. They came to other cultures. That's a rip in the ancestral lineage. So what if someone says to you, I hear and agree with everything you've said, but is there a sense in which you romanticize the past? In other words, if you look back at the last, there's no question that in original peoples, right, that the Stone Age consciousness that you describe was very real. And yet they were surrounded by loss and death. And, you know, they lived very, often they lived very difficult lives. And for the last, whatever, several thousand years, four or five thousand years, people have been the Stone Age idol, if it was an idol, which it may not have been, has been disrupted by the plague, by starvation, by all kinds of epidemics. So I don't disagree with anything you've said about these five gates of grief. But I wonder if we may not tend to romanticize the past if we don't place a caveat there that says, this is what we were wired for, but we haven't gotten it for a really long time. Absolutely true. Yeah. But I would add that when anthropologists, psychologists visit relatively intact cultures, mm -hmm. What they display psychologically and emotionally is a level of health mm -hmm. that we rarely no, know. No, I think that's true. I mean, yeah. you're thinking of Africa, among other Africa, places. South America. Yeah. yeah, there's many, you know, cultural traditions. There's over 7,000 cultures on the planet. Mm -hmm. We think there's one. Right. <laughs> you know, there's us. Yeah. But there's 7,000 ways of imagining being a people. Mm -hmm. And that's an amazing mm -hmm. richness. Mm -hmm. And when we try to homogenize it all down, which is the other side of romanticizing, is, mm -hmm. is making it disappear mm -hmm. by trying to bring it into the Coca-Cola world, you know, that's also a very destructive path. I want to come back to this grief about the sorrows of the world, because I think for a lot of people, the sorrows of the world are just overwhelming. You know, never before in human history have we had the capacity to alter the biosphere as a whole, fundamentally. So there were plagues, there were mass deaths, there were starvations. But the, you know, the conditions of life have been pretty solid for the last 65 million years, since the great extinction at the end of the age of dinosaurs. And here we are in the new era of extinctions, and 
you know, when we think about how our children are going to grow up or our grandchildren, it's like, it's really a tough gig, you know. And so there's a level of just underlying grief and also a level of complicity that here we are living in a culture that virtually demands that we contribute to climate change and toxic chemicals and habitat destruction and all of it. So we're not only experiencing grief, we are participating in it. So how, I mean, it's one thing to think about how we overcome the loss of a person, but how do we live in a lifelong condition of permanent overwhelming grief, that if we open ourselves to it, I mean, Joanna Macy obviously talks about this, but how do you, how do you address that? I was up in Victoria uh, last month doing a grief retreat up there, and virtually every person in the circle was there because of earth grief. Mm-hmm. There were a few dealing with you know, personal losses and suicides and things, but I was stunned by the number of people who, I'm here because of what's happening to the planet. Mm-hmm. And on Friday night, I gave a public talk, and someone asked that same question, you know, what's the answer? Mm-hmm. As if, you know, I had the answer. Mm-hmm. And I said, there is no answer, but there is a response. Mm-hmm. And every one of us must determine what our response is to this crisis. Mm -hmm. It might mean my willingness to be kinder. Mm -hmm. But I think what's really challenging is trying to face that level of overwhelm in private. And it will suffocate us. So we need to gather together. We also need hearts that are willing to respond to the crisis to what we're facing. And the only way I can think of of keeping the heart open is by staying close to sorrow. I think what's happened for me, and I think has happened for you too, is I've fallen more in love with the world mm-hmm. because of grief work. Mm-hmm. It has kind of widened the aperture of my heart to feel more intimate with life. Kind of the opposite of what we project onto grief which is a, it's a deadening state. It's a state of almost being depressed. But I often write about that grief is quite feral. It's very wild and alive. And if we're going to face what's going on on the planet, we need men and women who are really quite vividly alive to begin to shape something out of whatever is going to emerge that has beauty attached to it, that has love attached to it, and not just despair. Because it's very easy to go into despair right now. Cynicism and despair. Cynicism is a symptom of untouched sorrow. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. the heart begins to cramp and to, in a sense, turn bitter, Mm -hmm. which I've seen with many people in my work. Mm -hmm. But when they can have that grief acknowledged communally, I remember one woman who shared a very heartbreaking story about the death of her children and her husband. And how bitter she had become over the years and how everyone avoided her because of this kind of toxic cloud around her. And in the grief rituals we do, when you come back, you go down to the shrine as often as you want to really weep and acknowledge and honor your sorrow. But every time you come back from the shrine, you're greeted 
you're embraced, and people whisper in your ear, I saw you. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for emptying our communal cup. See, we think grief belongs to me. But what I've seen over the years now is that this is ours. All of us know loss. And we all right now are embedded deeply in this third gate of sorrow. And when we can be acknowledged for it, something in the heart can open back up. And this woman shared after the ritual was over, this was the first time anyone really thanked me for my sorrow. And I felt my heart softening. Hmm. Say more about how you do grief rituals. I know you do them regularly, often in a day-long format or a two-day format. Three days. Three days. Yeah. So how do you do a grief ritual in three days? What happens? Well... I often say at the beginning of our weekend, it is so strange that we need a workshop on grief. Mm -hmm. This itself is symptomatic of our great loss. This is the fourth gate of grief right here. Mm -hmm. We have forgotten how to weep together. Mm -hmm. You know, people have come from Massachusetts and Florida and Georgia and the Midwest, from the UK, which is wonderful for us. Mm -hmm. But again, it's symptomatic. There should be grief rituals in every community. Mm -hmm. Every month, we should be gathering to acknowledge the losses of our children, of you know, another creek that has lost salmon or whatever. We should be gathering together regularly to do this. So what we do for the grief rituals is we spend the first two days what I call composting. Because for many of us, grief is well packed. It's tightly packed into us. And so we use writing practices and singing and movement to try to begin to loosen the soil. And so for two days, we do that work. Then on the third day, we take that into the ritual itself, which is a beautifully choreographed process of a village where the people are singing and dancing. And then there's a pathway down to the grief shrine. And the grief shrine has now been filled with photographs and images and artifacts from things that people are grieving, whether they're personal losses or communal losses. And when we start the ritual, when someone's ready to go down to the shrine, they leave, they walk down there, but immediately someone steps in behind them, which, again, is one of, the, one of those healing moments that my grief is going to be witnessed. And so they go down to the shrine, and the container is the person that goes down there with them, and the person goes down there to grieve. The container person does nothing but witness, doesn't interact, doesn't speak to them, doesn't touch them, unless the person grieving asks for that. If they want to be held, they can be held. If they want to just feel their hands on their back, that's what they'll give them. And as long as they're feeling that that's what they need, they continue to, to keep processing their grief. And then the container helps bring them back to the village. And this movement just goes on for hours until we're done. What does the shrine look like? Well, here we put a large seven-foot table on crates on the ground and we put another table on top of that so there's layers of mm -hmm. flowers candles mm -hmm. cloths it's mm -hmm. quite beautiful mm -hmm. our grief needs to be received by something beautiful yeah. and then people put their objects on there midway through sunday and so it becomes a great place of potency mm -hmm. after the rituals over often say that there are sacred places on the planet concentrated places on the planet of mm -hmm. sacredness this is one of them Mm -hmm. This is one of them. The soul force has been condensed by our 
deep attention and our capacity to be with one another in a wholehearted way. And you can feel it. The room is dense at that point. But at the same time that we're coming to the end, there's this infectious joy that comes in the room. Dancing begins to break out. Laughter begins to occur. Because on the underside of deep sorrow is great joy. You know, I often say we live in a flatline culture. You know, we live a very, very narrow range of what our emotional lives can inhabit, in part because we have denied the dissent. We have denied access to those difficult, troublesome emotions. But at the same time, by denying that, we've compressed the joyous ones. Enchantment, delight, you know, pleasure. We live in a very narrow band which leaves us to rely upon stimulation and stimulants to feel like we have a pulse, mm-hmm. you know? We're listening to a conversation with Francis Weller, author of The Wild Edge of Sorrow, Rituals of Renewal and the Sacred Work of Grief. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour. What are the seasons of grief? Um, I don't know if there are. You know, somebody's father or mother dies, right? And so, at least... When I've experienced great loss in my life, my experience has been, well, a friend of mine who I really loved had to leave Commonweal, somebody that I worked with. And for me, this was a tremendous sense of loss. And there was a period of time when I could scarcely catch my breath, you know. But what I kept saying to myself was, I know this will be different in 24 hours. And then I know it will be different in 48 hours. I know a week from now it'll be different. I know a month from now it'll be different. And so I just breathed my way through those, you know, periods of time. And if you had told me, well, why don't you go to Francis's grief workshop, I wouldn't have wanted to go then. You know, that was a season of grief where I just needed to do that by myself in some sense. So... That's why I ask about seasons of grief. In other words, it seems to me that there are different states of grief, which may be very personally different. I'm just curious what your sense of that is. I think my reaction was somewhat along the lines of kind of our attachment and our, almost our addiction to this progressive movement. Mm-hmm. That I'll start here and I'll end up there. Yeah. Soul doesn't work that way. Mm. Soul is quite a ambulating creature. Mm-hmm. It moves forward, it, re- it regresses, it drops down, it moves sideways, it moves in all kinds mm-hmm. of directions. What I can say in terms of what you're alluding to is that grief has a way of taking us out of mm-hmm. the familiar world. Mm-hmm. We end up in a shadowed world mm-hmm. where things lose their familiar bearing. Mm-hmm. We feel lost, disoriented to a degree. We sometimes can't bear the touch of others. Sometimes we can't bear the feeling of being alone. Mm -hmm. In many cultures, it's considered a time of what they call living in the ashes. Mm -hmm. You've left the daylight world. Mm -hmm. You're living where everything has been reduced to its finest powder. Mm -hmm. Nothing left. This is a sacred time. You know, it isn't, again, we, we, we think that our job is to endure it and to get through it. But what if we approached it as something quite vital to our soul life? I knew that this was sacred time from the moment it happened. Yes. Yes. So 
And another fact, which I think is true, you and I were talking about it briefly before, is people metabolize grief in such profoundly different ways, you know? I mean, there's some people for whom personal grief is the hard part. Right. And there are others for whom impersonal grief is the hard part, you know? When my father and mother died, I loved them very deeply, but it wasn't that hard on me. It's shameful to say that in a sense, but it wasn't that hard on me. There have been other losses that were much harder on me than the death of my parents. Mm -hmm. Somehow, Mm -hmm. you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. I think probably it it somehow reflects how satisfying those attachments were. Mm -hmm. If they were thin and bare, the grief might be more, you know, searing. Mm -hmm. You had a satisfying relationship. Mm -hmm. Then it's just, you know, not just, but it's the sorrow of saying goodbye, Mm -hmm. you know, which we all have to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you talk about how each of us needs to undergo an apprenticeship with grief. What was your personal apprenticeship with grief? Well, I don't know if I could have called it that when I was going through it. It's now upon reflection. Mm -hmm. I see it. Mm -hmm. The biggest part of that apprenticeship was, first of all, even identifying it as grief. Mm -hmm. Because underneath, my personal experience was one of a lot of shame. And that second gate of grief was a huge place of sorrow for me. So feelings of worthlessness and self-hatred were with me for decades. It's hard to be reflective during those times. So that apprenticeship, I would say, began when I began to bring self-compassion into the story and beginning to open my heart back up to myself. When I began to do that, when I began to restore some feeling of worthiness to my life and to befriend my life, I wept for months at how harsh and cruel I was to myself for 40 years. Mm. So those tears were like a, a baptismal font. It was like washing my soul and really beginning to feel into my right to even exist, to be here. So that was the beginning of that apprenticeship was... Now I call it coming into right relationship with grief. Because at that point I was either trying to push it away or I was drowning in it. And coming into some deep relationship with sorrow was the first stage of that apprenticeship. And since grief has been central to your life work, what is your experience of a life work of working with grief? I'm curious what it's like for you to have lived in relationship to grief this deeply. It's one thing to have done your apprenticeship. It's another thing to have written about it and led many retreats. But what has it done to your soul and being to make this the focus of your life work? Well, I often say I never volunteered for the position. Right. You know, Mm -hmm. sometimes you get drafted and... You show up for duty. It's been profoundly moving Mm -hmm. to witness such genuine expression of soul. Mm -hmm. You know, when people gather for the rituals, typically there's 25 to 30 people who have never met before. Mm -hmm. You know? And by the time we leave, there's this feeling that we have really created a village here. And the gateway into that village was through sorrow. Mm -hmm. Our mutually 
felt experiences of loss. So what this has done for me, I think it has really made me feel the reality of soul so much more acutely. I was sharing with Michael earlier that I did a talk last Friday night called Love and Loss and Sorrow. And that I had a whole agenda in mind for this talk, but when I sat down to create the talk, soul took me in that direction. Mm -hmm. And I had to follow where it was leading Mm me. And I think that the grief work has been another way that has kind of deepened my affection and my fidelity to soul. You've had some very great teachers. One we've talked about before, James Hillman. Another I know less about, Maladoma Somme. Could you say a little about who those and any other teachers who have been sort of fundamental to the evolution of your work? got my degree and my license very young. I was 27 years old when they gave me a license. That wasn't my fault. They they gave it to me. Mm -hmm. But I was smart enough to know I didn't know what I was doing. Mm -hmm. So I found some teachers. I found my first mentor was a man named Clark Berry. And Clark was ancient. I think he was 60. Uh, I was surprised he could walk. I mean, he was just so old, you know. And the first time I sat down with Clark, he reached over and patted this big rock he had by his chair. And he said, this is my clock. I operate at geologic speed. And if you're going to work with the soul, you need to learn this rhythm because this is how the soul moves. And it hates this thing. And he pointed to his clock. What a brilliant thing to teach this young budding therapist about the urgency to make things happen fast. Quick change, you know. But to learn geologic speed, what a brilliant thing to teach me. Mm-hmm. So that, I tell everybody I work with that story because people coming into my practice are usually have this underlying need to change quickly. But underneath that urge to change quickly is usually a lot of self-judgment. I've got to get my stuff together before I'll be led into the circle. So I've got to get this all put together. I've got to get fixed. I've got to get healed. I've got to get better. Then maybe I'll be welcomed into the circle. And I say, I want to disavow ourselves of any collusion in that story. Mm -hmm. We're not here to make you better. Mm -hmm. We're here to deepen your connection to soul. Mm -hmm. So then it brings me to James Hillman, who was probably one of the most brilliant teachers on the reclamation of soul following Jung. And I studied with Hillman on many occasions, but not so much to do his style, but again, fidelity, his devotion. I once had a dream with Hillman in it, and in the dream, we're sitting at a, at, a, at a kitchen table like this, and we're talking about furniture refinishing. That was a deep topic at the time. And then he gets up and walks over to this closet and opens the door, and there's this chest of drawers in there with little drawers on, on there, and he opens every drawer and pulls out a sheet of paper. This is in your dream? Yes. And Hillman pulls out these sheets of paper from every drawer, and on them is the bibliography of young. <laughs> Ficino, Vico, Heraclides, and said, this is your family tree. Mm. So I was claimed by that, and I can't get away from it. You know, that's my heritage, that's my lineage. Another part of our grief is to feel that we are basically standing alone in the world, right? And to feel that there's something underneath us, that we're standing on shoulders upon shoulders upon shoulders upon shoulders is an incredible feeling. Yeah. So to know that I'm not, in a sense 
just isolated cell, but I'm a continuation of a thought, of a dream, of an imagination that I can help to further or, or bring another step into the world. That's also part of that teaching. Maladoma was this rascal I met back in 1994, comes from Burkina Faso in Africa, sent here by his elders to bring indigenous wisdom from his culture to this culture in the hopes that by teaching us how to be human again, we might stop destroying their culture. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so when I met Maladoma, it was like another door in the house got open. So I'd been working with patients at that point for you know, 15, 20 years. But when I was introduced to ritual, it was like a whole other room was opened up into, into my mind and my imagination of what healing would look like. And it was like restoring it back to its primal context. We never did healing. I mean, even though we call it private practice, is itself symptomatic, you know. There's nothing wrong with it. We need that container. Sometimes that's the most we can tolerate that kind of depth of contact is one-to-one. But I tell almost everybody I work with, this is a good place to start. But ultimately, the final welcome will be in the context of community and village. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the people I work with transit into grief rituals, gratitude rituals, some of the men's initiation work, because I know that that's where a level of healing can occur that cannot occur in my office. That's the context, that's the primal context for restoring our sense of welcome in the world. You have a beautiful line that you use in the Cancer Help Program that I never know quite how to say. This is the work... This is the solitary journey we cannot do alone. This is the... I got to write that down. This is the solitary journey that we cannot do alone. Yeah, that's a a line from Ira Progoff, the great journal writer, journal teacher. Yeah, and it's so true. Most of our time in grief will be alone. Mm -hmm. Most of our time dealing with most issues in our life will be faced alone. But there's a level at which we need to lean into something larger than ourselves. Mm -hmm. Jung said that the soul cannot become itself without an other, which is always found in a you. Mm -hmm. You know? So this, this idea in psychology that this is all inner work, it's partially true. It's also... Relational work. There's another phrase from the alchemical traditions by a man named Michael Sendavogius, who said the greater part of the soul lies outside the body. This is an important thing for us to realize because our religious traditions have placed soul interiorly. But what if the greater part of the soul lies outside the body? Then true intimacy, true contact with a friend, a partner, a tree, a turtle happens in that space between us, in the overlap, in the place where we're actually making contact. The intimacy occurs in the third, in the between, not so much in my interior privacy, but in that place of connectivity. What we're talking about is a return to soul and to the sacred. Mm -hmm. Those are areas that are oftentimes neglected, aren't they? Mm -hmm. I mean... Hillman once said, in your wound are your soul's deepest desires. Mm -hmm. So when we experience a loss, some experience of woundedness, we're being brought back to something that's Mm -hmm. probably been neglected Mm -hmm. or abandoned or betrayed. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's going back to the second gate of grief. 
And the psyche is trying to bring us back into some relationship, mm-hmm. some type of intimacy with parts of our own experience that have not been mm-hmm. welcomed or honored. You know, I remember when I had my heart attack 12 years ago and, and uh, didn't know whether I would live or die. And it was a profound, profound moment. And when I emerged from it, I felt as if I could start my life completely fresh. And, you know, I really thought about it because I thought I could do anything now, you know. And I remember that the first two things I decided was, okay, I want to stay married to my wife and I want to continue to work at Commonweal. But they were conscious choices. It was like I could go anywhere. And so that's an example. All my different subpersonalities mm-hmm. were in play. And, you know, in this very altered state of consciousness that felt like, honestly, it felt like enlightenment. You know, it felt like, you know, at that level of shock, you can have that, you know, Shota yes. Harada Roshi yes. and others say that, you know, a major accident or event like that is like worth 5,000 hours on the cushion or whatever, right. you know. Right. And so, and it, it fades over time. Yeah. These events, these periods of our life are meant to reshape us. Mm-hmm. You know, when we're dealing with the Cancer Help Program, yeah. I'll often say to the participants in the circle that you've entered into what I call a rough initiation. Mm-hmm. You didn't choose this. We don't choose most of these things mm-hmm. that come upon us, mm-hmm. but if we can, we can use them. That's right. We can be reshaped by them. And in a sense, uh, reimagined by them. Mm-hmm. And that would be a good use of that mm-hmm. experience. And I like the way you say we can be reshaped and even be reimagined. In other words, the active part there is, is in, the, in the archetypes. We are being reimagined. We are not reimagining ourselves. Right. As if, from Hillman's point of view, he didn't like the hegemony of the ego very much. You know, so he liked the recognition that the incredible uh, vitality and independent consciousness of the archetype. Right. And one of the things that Hillman was, I always think about, and I don't think he was entirely clear about, but you know him much better than I do, was whether the archetypes were entirely internal forces or whether they had, as Ficino and others believed, an external reality that they lived through us, but they weren't simply internal. My memory of Hillman is that he kind of uh, 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 is not certain about that. Well, that was a great place of contention right? Among, I mean, amongst a lot of the... Uh, mm-hmm. Hillmanians. Mm-hmm. Or Hillmaniacs. Hillmaniacs, yes. Yeah. I remember, uh, uh, oh, what's his name? Um, Giegrich, mm-hmm. uh, one of his students, mm-hmm. then became a peer. Uh, I was at a conference with them, and Giegrich got up and, and said, So where's the bull? Mm-hmm. If we're really going to honor the gods, there must be a sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to literalize that, mm-hmm. you know, that if we we're going to talk about it and get it out of the abstract, mm-hmm. what are we going to do? Mm-hmm. So I think that's a good question of, you know, is this simply a psychic phenomenon or is it really a cosmological truth mm-hmm. that the gods 
the presences mm-hmm. are there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, don't know. I think I think uh, if you if you pay attention to traditional cultures, the idea that they were internal was bizarre. You're right. They they were embedded in the landscape. Right. And in the cosmos. Right. We've kind of inverted that. Exactly. When the gods disappeared, when we lost the cosmology, right. we created psychology. Exactly. So that when, when we imagine that the universe is dead, inert, and has no significance, right. and that existentially the world only has the significance that we attribute to it, right. which is the modern worldview, right. in that view then we take the powers that were outside of us, that moved through us, and we can only place them within us. Right, right. And who knows which is the greater distortion. True. Yeah. You can also feel the tremendous loneliness that exactly. that creates. Exactly. You know, that I become simply a psychic reality exactly. rather than a mythic participant. I mean, the evidence that the universe is not alive is no stronger than the evidence that it is alive. You know, I mean, it just is a remarkable thing that we assume that the universe is dead and inert, and we have no good reason for assuming that any more than, you know, than a much more interesting hypothesis about it. It seems to be a great lack of imagination. I think it is a lack of imagination. Yes, yes. I also am fascinated, I mean, we're talking, because we both love it, about archetypal psychology. And I am completely fascinated by how marginalized archetypal psychology is in the mainstream of psychology today. I mean, it's just astonishing, you know? But what, what is psychology today, you know? It's, it's uh, what is psychiatry? You know, it's uh, behavior-modifying drugs mm-hmm. and brief behavioral interactions. And that's what passes for psychology in the American mainstream. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Jung, I mean, obviously he's made a huge comeback in the circles that we move in. But still, archetypal psychology is extraordinarily marginalized. And yet, to me, it's by far far the most alive, accurate, insightful, profound understanding Mm -hmm. of the human Mm -hmm. psyche Mm -hmm. that we have around today. Well, part of its problem is that it's not... um It doesn't fit the model of progress. Right. It's not a system that's designed to improve the patient. That's right. And to get them, in a sense, back into a point of rejoining the collective. Being, quote, normal. Hillman had a great phrase, is that therapy should be a cell of revolution. Mm -hmm. That the process that goes on inside that room should activate that person's soul. Another place he said that the surest sign that the soul is awake is that it's outraged. Mm-hmm. So I want people in my practice to get in touch with their outrage. Mm-hmm. Not only for their personal losses, but for what we pass as culture. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that, that insidious kind of uh, life-denying, monotony-driven process mm-hmm. of earning a living, mm-hmm. which is the most obscene phrase in our culture. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that we're kind of poor, you know, forced into that model uh, that's, I think that's part of the beauty of archetypal psychology. Is it, it really is an act of protest. You know, it refuses. Hillman also had this phrase, in your, in your pathology is your salvation. Mm-hmm. Great line. First time I read that, I threw the book across the room. <laughs> I hated that line. 
My pathology was the source of my shame, my, my defectiveness. It was the reason I didn't belong in the world. Mm -hmm. And he turned that completely around. Mm -hmm. He said, the soul refuses to conform. Mm -hmm. The soul will refuse to match the image that's been pushed upon it by culture, by family, mm -hmm. by church, by your educational systems. And it will visit you with pathology as a way to, to create a certain unique character to mm -hmm. you. And if you can work with that, mm -hmm. the pathology leads to your genius. Mm -hmm. You know, that's beautiful. Mm -hmm. That's elegant. Mm -hmm. And that's why, you know, when I went to graduate school in my early 20s, the agenda was to help get rid of the symptom. Mm -hmm. Help the person become symptom free. Mm -hmm. Then Hillman said, you rid the person of symptom, you rid them of soul. Mm -hmm. Which is quite why Rilke refused psychoanalysis. Right, yeah. right. You will rid me of my angels as yeah, well as my demons. Right, right, yes. Right. You know, I've just been reading, I don't know if you know this book, by Naomi Klein called This Changes Everything. It's about yes, capitalism read it, yeah, and climate change. Yeah. And um, the basic thesis is that if you really look at it, that you can't overcome climate change with energy-efficient light bulbs and electric cars and stuff like this, that capitalism itself... Yes is fundamentally the problem. And so uh, she also talks about the deep relationship between uh, poverty and capitalism and climate change. Because obviously, as Marx said, uh, the problem with capitalism is that it cannot stop the increasing disparities between wealth and, and uh, poverty. And so there's this beautiful passage I was just reading today in which she says that intrinsic to the system is um, that you give, that you progressively give people dirtier and more meaningless work that they have to do to, quote, earn a living. That, you know, to earn a living. And that if you wanted to, you could create a system whereby everybody got an, a sufficiency enough to live on, you know? And therefore, meaningless, dirty, impoverished work was no longer encouraged. It no longer made sense because, of, you know, and it was just such a profound reimagining. I mean, then she has a whole budget of what you could do to raise the money to do this. But there's, you know, there's such a, when, 40 years ago, when I imagined a place about healing ourselves and healing the earth, there is such a profound relationship between healing ourselves and healing the earth. Yes. And it becomes clearer with every passing year, mm -hmm. you know, that just, uh, just the veil is getting shredded, you know? Yeah. The system does not work, you know? Well, capitalism, is, in a sense, relies upon chronic emptiness. That's right. And on, and on consumer goods to fill the emptiness. Precisely. Yeah. So if we actually offered people what I call primary satisfactions, right. the things that the soul actually yearns for, right. capitalism would collapse mm -hmm. because it wouldn't be a new TV that you craved. Mm -hmm. It would be time around the fire at night. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't be the new car. It would be a gathering of friendships, mm -hmm. you know. The primary satisfactions would be the mm -hmm. things that mm -hmm. would, would meet us Mm -hmm. in the most complete way and not rely upon 
material goods. We, 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 we are what I call a secondary satisfaction culture, mm -hmm. which means we rely upon wealth, status, privilege, mm -hmm. uh, power, um, mm -hmm. and on its more shadowy side, addictions mm -hmm. are another form of secondary satisfaction. Mm -hmm. You notice you can never get enough of the things you don't need. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we want more and more stuff. Our houses, you know, our houses are jam-packed with stuff that we don't need. I walk down the mall, 99% of what's there is useless. Mm -hmm. So coming back to grief for a moment. That was grief. I know. <laughs> I know. But coming back to grief explicitly. Yes. Um, so grief, it seems to me, is an invitation to awaken. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. So if we've just lost someone, or if we are mourning, I mean, you and I know that grief doesn't wait until you've lost somebody. It happens the moment there is a diagnosis. And, you know, there's right. the loss not only of more and more of that person, but your own loss, if you're the caretaker or the other, yes. you know. Yes of the tremendous losses, and the losses that you have not only related to the other person, but the losses of what your life might be if you weren't deeply engaged in grieving and caretaking and everything else. So there's just tons of grief, right? right, that right, right. Around that primary issue, either of a, a death or of a diagnosis and everything that goes with it. And in a sense, the only salvation seems to be to awaken. Well, that's the invitation of grief. Right. I mean, the grief really is this process that if we are willing to undertake that apprenticeship, right. it's the thing that allows that loss to be metabolized in a way that it remains in our hearts softly. Right. You know? But isn't it also true that if you awaken to the life and the choices that you really want to make is not always easy and not always kind for the people around you. That's often the case. That's often the case. Yes. And so it is not without cost. No. Yeah. No. But to participate in further self-betrayal, right. that cost begins to become untenable right. once you've really cracked open to that right. experience right. of grief. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It does demand... I mean, I'm thinking of so, so many stories that are just popping in my mind as we're talking of, of people who've uh, undertaken that process and who have come and radically changed their life as a consequence mm -hmm. of undertaking that walk right. with sorrow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We're listening to a conversation with Francis Weller author of The Wild Edge of Sorrow, Rituals of Renewal, and The Sacred Work of Grief. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio. I want to open it up to questions now. My name is Mira. And you were talking about the fifth stage was ancestral, and we didn't get to the sixth stage. Were there six stages? Five stages. Five, five, five stages. Okay, five can you say a little bit more about the ancestral grief? Sure. So the question is, can I say a little bit more about ancestral grief? 
So the first part was, you know, leaving a culture, leaving an intact tribal place. A lot of the things that come up in my practice, um, to use a line of roomies, began in some other tavern. In other words, it began in another generation. One woman I was working with had tremendous shame around her sexuality and her body and could barely let her husband get near her. And we looked at all the different, you know, psychological stories, all of her history, nothing. So one day I said, you know, I don't think this began with you. I think this began generations ago. And then she began talking about her mother's relationship to her body and her grandmother's relationship to her body and to sexuality. And clearly there's a lineage, there's an inheritance here of deep shame that didn't begin in her life. She absorbed it. She inherited it. So we created some rituals for her to do, to begin to, to break that lineage, to break that inheritance. They're actually doing some very interesting research now. I don't know how much has gotten into human research yet, but animal research shows that trauma that happens three or four generations back is showing up in the bodies of this current generation. Epigenetics. Yeah. So we're seeing this truth. And I, the woman's name is popping out of my head right now. She's done a lot of work with post-traumatic slave syndrome, looking at 500 years of slavery in this culture and how that lineage has deposited now in current generations of African-American men and women. Mm. And she can see the absolute truth of this ancestral inheritance. So we need to be mindful that we're not just walking, again, with our own bodies, right? With our own psyches, but also the inheritance. Another piece of that ancestral grief is what, particularly for uh, European-Americans, what our ancestors did when they got here. Mm-hmm to the indigenous populations, to the importation of slavery, what happened to the basically an intact environmental and ecological systems. That's also part of our ancestral grief. That's still playing out almost every single day across the country. And racial tensions, you know, the poverty, these things are still untended and unresolved. And I think it's going to take a lot of grief work to begin to mend those tears. They're starting to do some of that in South Africa. There's been some movement towards apology and reconciliation with indigenous tribes in Canada and Australia. It took a big back step with that current prime minister in Canada, but now there's a new one. Trudeau. Trudeau, who invited you know, the traditional people to be on, on cabinet. So that's encouraging. But we haven't not done a whole lot. You know, your point just now about the grief of American Anglo people about what we did to the indigenous population in North America raises another really important point, which is that our grief is not only about what happened to us, but also very often about what we did. And for me, that is often the most painful thing of all. It's what I have done that hurts other people. That's the kind of difficult to forgive part. Yes. What we do ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. That's deep grief. That's deep grief. Regrets. Yes. Did you have a two-four? I don't know if I can rephrase that question. It's something about, can you jump the ship (laughs) of your your inheritance, your genetic inheritance, your psychologically genetic? I don't think you need to. I think what it needs is community to help you work with that. All of the wounds that I've encountered in my lifetime are still there. One of Jung's comments that I liked a lot is that most of the issues we face in our life are unsolvable. We simply outgrow them. 
But the trick is, how do you outgrow them? So that means, can I begin to move it from the hands of the wound, the hands of the complex, into the adult's hands? Mm. So the wounds are still there, but they're not what I'm seeing through anymore. They're over here to the side that remind me of my vulnerability. They're not definitions anymore. For most of my life, what I experienced, what I inherited, were definitions. There are commentaries on my worthiness. Now they're simply the experiences that I've had. They're not definitions anymore. So I didn't need to jump the ship so much. Besides, our soul, I do feel, is claimed by some soul lineage, some sacred lineage. All of us, I think, have something that has claimed us. What in the Greek tradition be called a daimon? That spirit that, that says, this is what I claim, this is what I ask you to pay attention to in your lifetime. So you follow that. That'll also be the place where the two of them actually meet. Because the other Greek phrase is, in your wound is your genius. Hmm. So if I'm just trying to partition that or jump ship, I'm also then, again, losing something of great value. These places of suffering are not incidental. They're actually necessary. In the alchemy traditions, they say that soul-making cannot begin until there's an adequate amount of suffering. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's, the, that's the material. That's what soul is shaped out of. People, yes. I obviously get that community is important in grieving, but not everybody has access to you to rituals. Where, where do we find community? So where do we find community for grieving? That's an essential question. And you don't need to wait for a grief ritual weekend. I, often, I think I say in the book as well that we can start very simply and very small. It's like on Friday night, call four or five of your friends and say, you know, we're going to do something really different tonight. Mm-hmm. I see on that face, yes. <laughs> on Friday night, we're going to talk about sorrow. We're going to talk about grief. Mm-hmm. But under certain conditions, no advice giving. Grief is not a problem to be solved. It's a presence waiting for witnessing. And I can't tell you the number of times... There has been this feeling of great relief when someone's been simply granted permission to speak what's in their heart. So try it. Just call together a few people, say, you know, we're going to try this because we need it. Let me say a word about that because one of our principal projects now at Commonweal is called Healing Circles, which is an effort to, uh, from 30 years of the Cancer Health Program to understand, and our alumni group experiences, to understand what are the agreements that need to take place right. for something like this to take place. And they're not complicated. So, you know, basically, you, you, you bring together a group of people around grief or sorrow, and you say, you know, we'll meet once a month for two and a half hours, We'll start with silence. We'll be in a beautiful place with a candle in the middle. We'll have a talking stick. We'll pass it around the room. Nobody fixes anything. I mean, basic, you know, you can find this in Parker Palmer's work. You can find it in um, the peer spirit counseling work. There are a whole bunch of different places, but they all say the same thing. Beautiful place, candle in the middle, start with silence, end with silence. Don't fix people, no crosstalk. Just go around the room with the stick or with a stone or just, you know, in some order. But it's unbelievably powerful. It It does require at least one person in the room 
with enough experience. They don't have to be a trained psychotherapist, but somebody who can hold the space. And ideally, you have three or four people who hold the space together, who have enough experience. So you might start with an inner group of three or four people who you trust, who can figure out how to hold the space and what the agreements will be. And then you can do very profound grief mm -hmm, work. Mm -hmm. When we started our center up on Whidbey Island, Healing Circles Langley, which we thought we were going to start with cancer groups, the first group that came together was a grief group. You know, it was the, the first thing that wanted to come together in the community. And it's been very powerful. And in fact, grief work is easier to do well than healing work with cancer because if you imagine a circle with a vertical line that represents soul work and a horizontal line that represents a navigation bar of all the different things that people have to figure out, when somebody's living with an active cancer, there are a whole set of questions about treatments and all kinds of other stuff that belong on the navigation bar, whereas the navigation bar for grief work is simpler in some sense. You know, it's like, what are the methods that mm -hmm. work? Yeah for working with this grief and more universal. And the other thing I would say is that this book, The Wild Edge of Sorrow, Rituals of Renewal and the Sacred Work of Grief, is to my mind just a textbook for anybody trying to figure out how to do grief work on their own. Yeah. Yes, right here. Um, I guess my question is, is more towards the role of evil, dealing with evil in the world. You know, we've talked about archetypal energies and how, how does evil fit in? How, how do we cope with evil? Because evil seems to cause a lot of grief. You know, we, we see things in the world. Is this innate, an innate energy? I guess we're back to the innate energy question. Is, is that just a reality that's there and somehow uh, people act it out? Or, or, or do they learn to be that way? That's a pay grade question. You know, I, I don't know the answer to that. And we've been struggling with that question for a long time. <laughs> is, is it an innate presence in the, on the, in the cosmos or something that is a, a consequence of what it is we've lost association with, our humanity? Patricia's son once said that the word evil is live spelled backwards. Mm -hmm. So it's when the life force is turned backwards that we encounter evil. And there are many conditions that would make someone begin to become contrary to the life force. Extreme poverty, you know, extreme oppression, you know, extreme violence. These things can break our, our connection and our connectivity to what it means to be human and to support the life force. And in a sense, then to begin to perpetuate its opposite, its reversal, which is to deny the life force in others, in the land, you know, in a culture. So that would be one way I would respond to that question. You know, just on the question of whether evil is an active force in the universe or whether it's the absence of light is, I think, the great philosophical question. Is it ignorance or is it an active force? And people differ on that. But it's an important question. Right. Yeah. I'm wondering if there's a connection between grief and soul injury and PTSD and or depression? Definitely. Is, is, the, the, question? the question is, is there a relationship between grief, soul injury, trauma, and depression? Yeah. Is that yeah. pretty close? Absolutely. I think trauma, one of the, every trauma carries grief. Not every grief carries trauma. 
losing, you know, like you said, your parents died. It was mm -hmm. not a traumatic thing. No. It was grief. Yeah. So they're not always linked. Right. When they are, when trauma occurs, there's definitely a process. Again, going back to this idea of rough initiation. Trauma is also a form of rough initiation. The same things occur in trauma that happen in traditional initiatory practices. Different outcomes. Trauma and, and initiation both sever you from the way things were, radically shift your sense of identity, and there's a profound sense that I can never go back to the way things were. In traditional initiatory experiences, that's a breakthrough into some larger sense of identity. In trauma, it's the exact inverse. It is a shattering down into an exceptionalism of being completely isolated in the cosmos. That's a profound state of loss. There's some very interesting work being done right now that came up out of the Native American culture when American soldiers coming back from Afghanistan put through the current PTSD treatment regimens, 30-40% recovery rate. They said, well, let's try something different. They put them back into the sweat lodge. They put them through pipe ceremonies and vision quest. 80 to 90% recovery rate. Mm -hmm. What they're saying by that is the trauma causes this rupture out of a cosmological sense of belonging. So how do we heal that? We restore the cosmological containment. You restore them to the cosmos. So that's a profound thing that we need to learn about in terms of treating trauma, but also how do we process the grief associated with that. So a vision quest, and I'm not proposing that as a panacea. We need those type of events, those type of processes. And that's why the grief rituals themselves are powerful, because we're restoring part of the primal context. Grieving back in community, invoking the sacred, singing together. It is amazing to be kneeling side by side with ten other people all weeping together. I did a grief ritual for the Wirdwan community in May in Berkeley. 85 people grieving in this large auditorium. It was phenomenal to hear that much wailing and weeping, and the joy that came up out of that was astonishing. The restoration of cosmological context is really important. I'm curious why the word compassion isn't in your book, because my experience with grief is that that is really the nectar that it comes from the experience of grief is this amazing connection that you, you have with the world around you. Well, I don't know if you heard my story earlier about my own experience, that it was through compassion that I could begin to weep for my own losses of my own life, my own sense of worth. There's a whole chapter in the back of the book on self-compassion and the necessity of compassion. It is one of the things that we have the most difficult time achieving in our own relationship to ourselves. It is part of the apprenticeship of sorrow, is to restore a foundational agreement of self-compassion. Mm. You know, to not evaluate, to not judge, to not push away any of our experience, but to truly welcome it as part of what makes us who we are. Mm. So, absolutely. Mm. When I lead, I actually lead workshops on self-compassion, and I begin the weekend by saying, this is a weekend in non-self-improvement. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone laughs. Because we are addicted to self-improvement, you know, because we have this obsession with making ourselves better, 
rather than, as Jung would say, I'd rather be whole than good. Mm. How do we make ourselves whole but by welcoming all of mm. our experience? I'd rather be whole than good. That's a perfect note on which to end this conversation. Great. Francis Weller, thank you so thank much. Thank you, Mike. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you all. And that was Francis Weller, author of The Wild Edge of Sorrow, Rituals of Renewal and the Sacred Work of Grief. And next, we're going to hear Stephen Jenkinson and Gregory Hoskins from Knights of Grief and Mystery. Well, it's, it's just been a very old story of not being allowed to join anything. I'd like to tell the story to uh, all the men here. That's how you learn about old. You learn about old by learning about not young. There's such a thing as not young. You'd be glad of it, that your youth is finally done. You don't have to do that crazy shit anymore. You get to do old person crazy shit. Much different repertoire. But this is for the men. There's a mournful little event that happens in the life of a young boy. It doesn't seem to get nearly the kind of attention I think it deserves. And it's this. You were adrift in the amniotic funk of your mother for the longest time. That's not the mournful part. The mournful part is when you are expelled. And you are expelled. It's not your idea. You're trying to figure out what did you do wrong. You're three, which is a deeply achieved age by then. And you're following the rules as best as you can figure them out, though they are a bit of a moving goalpost from time to time, but still. And for all of that, suddenly somebody decides, and you get the message that the bath time thing has changed. And you are expected now to do so on your own. What a mysterious thing. Something like being excommunicated. You're trying to find the reason why and nobody tells you. And then there's a certain familiarity that goes by the wayside with that woman that you've known for so long, your entire life at least. And she doesn't let you as close in the same way as she wants it. You know what I'm talking about, of course, but I'm telling it from the kid's point of view. And again, nobody explains it. Nobody says this is good for you. And if they did, it wouldn't mean anything anyway. What's, what, what's wrong with the bath? <laughs> the good old bath, you know. So time goes by, you see, and eventually you're banished from any real alertness to your mother's physique. This is one of the great losses for a young boy turning into something flirting with the beginnings of manhood. So confusing. That kind of love is so confusing. No guidebook, no explanation, and it sure doesn't look like love. And time goes by, and you get used to it, and apparently this is called growing up. 
you scab over that place and then apparently you heal over or you get a bunion on it, whatever it is. And it's the least sensitive place in you from then on. And that's the reward system. You feel that the least. And this apparently is a good sign that you're getting on with your life. And time goes by. And maybe something like this happens if you're lucky enough to live long enough. That your mother's admitted to the hospital for who knows how many times. In my mother's case, she was of the first generation of women who could smoke in public without opprobrium following the war. And she did. And she exercised that right to the full and she smoked and smoked. And she sent me to the store for her cigarettes and I used to argue with her, as you would have done and probably did do. But it was legal in those days for a kid to pick up his mother's cigarettes, and I did. And of course, she's eventually diagnosed with emphysema. And of course, that's what she died of. But you don't know that yet, because you can get used to these chronic hospitalizations the way you can get used to almost anything, including being excommunicated from closeness to her. So I went in for my, you know, duty of visit, and I walked to the room, And the door was open, and the bed was empty, and it was nicely made, and her chart wasn't there. And by this time, I was working in the business. I went to the front desk, and I got the nurse's attention. I said, uh, Mrs. Jenkinson, uh, <laughs> should I know anything? They said, oh, yes, she's been transferred to such and such a ward. I said, oh, really? Why is that? They said, well, they were better able to care for her there. Now, she's admitted with emphysema. This is a pulmonary care facility, and she's being discharged to someplace more able to care for her. And I looked at the woman and she wouldn't look at me. I looked at her and she still wouldn't look up. And I made myself say something that I never in a million years imagined I'd say. I said to her, you've decided that she's palliative, haven't you? And that's what this means. And that's when she looked up at me and she said, yes. And that walk from that station to my mother's room, I tried to change my mind as to where in her life I was. Because when it comes to your parents, it's always you first, isn't it? Of course it is. It's my mother I'm talking about. Where in her life am I? And by the time I got there, I couldn't. I couldn't make that. I couldn't turn the corner. And I walked in. And by this time, she was what they call in the business uh, unresponsive, which means we're never going to talk again about anything. She was heaving because she was breathing from up here now. And the nurses were suctioning her and so on. It was, very, it was a grim, grim time. And I stood there, and, and fortunately, there was nobody else there. And in that moment, all of those years and all of that excommunication washed over me for the last time. And I looked at her like I'd never done before because she couldn't look back. And I'll tell you, I did. I looked down and I looked to that place where I came into the world from. And I'd never looked at it in 40 years. Oh, she was still all clothed and everything, of course. But I looked there and I knew that to be as close to home as I would ever have. And how is it in our life that we draw closest to home 
as it draws away from us. And that's how it was in that moment. And I looked at her and I saw then how she was truly among many other things in this life. But she was the canoe that bore me into this world with her heaving rib cage and her uncertain spine and all the other aspects of canoedom that she had. If you've ever seen a canoe with no one in it out in the water, it's a disturbing sight. Something's really wrong when you see that. But for all of that, if a canoe is out there, no one in it, and the wind has it, it's a fitful, turning thing. But when the canoe is in the current, it moves very faithfully, not all the twisting and turning at all, born as it seems bearing must be. And that's when I knew that canoe is leaving and is leaving without me. Well, I suppose I'm going to take a little walk. And I, just, I, I love the smallness of the scale. I'm, just, uh, I'm going to take a walk. And where am I going? Through the terror-filled streets of the fact that I don't get to do this a thousand more times. No, he says. No, it's a little field, man. And as a farmer, that means a lot to me, I must tell you. A field is like everything I could never have thought of all in one place. I take a little walk through this field at the ending of my days. What does one do when one gets there? Of all the things he proposes to carry him gently. I'm going to carry me gently. Why? Because it's already been so hard. That's not why. That's not why. Because there are times when the healing of the heart doesn't come from inactivity. It comes from being on the receiving end of some other kind of grace that you'd never really thought about. I'm going to carry me gently so my heart can heal, which wouldn't be a bad way to die at all. And of all the things that could come next, when I heard this one, he says, I'm going to find me a demon. And where else do they live? In a dark, dark wood. Well, don't forget where you've been. What's a field and a dark wood? And the answer is where one ends, the other begins. That's where you are. That's where you are. It's not some other place entirely. They somehow belong together. At my farm, you find them cheek by jowl. That's where they are. But of all the things to seek at the ending of your days, but a demon. What is this demon thing? What might the difference between a demon and an angel, the one you'd think you'd normally seek at a time like that in your days? What, what's the difference really? That angel? that you seek out on occasion, that's the one who's carrying what you have in mind for yourself. Something that you welcome. The only difference from the angel is the demon is carrying that mandatory urgency of life that you don't quite welcome and you don't quite seek and you don't feel quite ready for. And so because of all that unwelcomeness, the demon has the PR that it currently has. Tonight we could suspend that old understanding of the terrible difference between them and imagine that one of the ways that we have the deep presence in our life 
is that both sides of that story appear and the demon and the angel both which is why I love that lyric I'm gonna find me a demon in a dark dark wood when it's my time to die if that weren't love letter enough for being alive he writes a little love letter to everybody who's hearing the song it's this strange kind of sorrow packed mysterious proposition that you are allowed at the end of your days to wish somebody could come with you completely in fact let's go further and say it's mandatory that you don't want to walk that by yourself and why should you and maybe you shouldn't have to but you probably will and both of those things can be true at the same time and they don't cancel each other out and you don't have to choose between them you can wish somebody could come with you and you can know the rest of the story which is that they can't you can't come with me he says still I wish you could and if that ain't a love song then I've never heard one but having heard that one I believe I've heard them all Stephen Jenkinson from his Nights of Grief and Mystery Tour. Stephen will be going out on tour again this fall, beginning in September, and he'll be in the New England area in October. You can find out more about this tour, when and where it's be happening, at his website, orphanwisdom.com. That's orphanwisdom.com. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, have a wonderful week.